Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Stephanie Holmes Winton, CEO and founder of Cashflow. Cashflow is an online tool for helping advisors to better provide advice and actual information to clients in regards to their cash flow. And with that, here's my interview with Stephanie. Hello, Stephanie. Hey, how are you, Jason? Good, good. Thanks for taking the time today. Absolutely. Good. So, Stephanie Holmes Winton of Cashflow, tell us about Cashflow. Yeah, so um, we are a tech company that builds behavior-based cash flow management tools so that financial professionals can help clients change spending behavior so that they've got the money left to do the saving that we all know they need to do. So basically going back to the fundamentals of all planning, which is just handling the money coming in and out. Yes, handling the money coming in and out in a way that we can get the humans to actually follow it. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's it sounds so simple in, in theory, yet in practice, we all know that's the biggest challenge most people face when it comes to just handling the day-to-day finances. Absolutely. And every product in financial services is connected, right? So if somebody sells insurance, that's you know, we're using today's cash flow to make sure if something bad happens that there'll be cash flow created tomorrow. And if we're investing, we're using today's cash flow to create cash flow that we can withdraw later in life. So it's all connected, but somehow this particular piece sometimes just doesn't get the attention it really needs for us to to help people really change. We can talk about that in a second. So basically, before we go down that road, uh, first thing to clear up for anyone looking for it, it's cash flow spelled C-A-C-H-E-F-L-O-W. I'm guessing the original cash flow was just a URL that was impossible to get. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) with that, let's, let's start off. Tell us your history about how you came to start this company, what you did beforehand. Yeah, so I was an advisor for a decade. So I was my customer for a long time, which is how I knew for certain that this was a challenge. And so um, I started my career with Clerica, which is now Sun Life, and then I went on to Manulife. And uh, what I found is that all the people I was working with, if I really dug in around why they didn't want to take my advice or why they weren't saving enough or why they couldn't afford the insurance that I really knew they needed. And what I discovered is a lot of people were making really great money, but most of them didn't know where it was going. And when I started poking around to find how do we solve this problem, because I simply refuse to accept that we you know, we'll look at a client who's making $100,000 a year or $150,000 a year and say, oh, well, they can't afford to save next. I just couldn't accept it. And I found that the individuals, the clients were really motivated to change it. But I noticed that if they try to use traditional budgeting approaches, that they were really struggling with how those, that type of idea meshed with how they actually spend. So I spent the 10 years working face-to-face with clients and I stumbled upon patterns and what I guess behavioral economists would call seemingly irrelevant factors, like little things you could change that would make behavior really 
really easy to change and very consistent. Relevant factors. I love that. Yeah, SIFs. It's literally a term used in in behavioral economics. So we found all these things. I didn't know that's what they were called. I just noticed that, hey, when you do this, this happens and it, it works with everybody. And so after about 10 years, I had started writing a lot about debt and cash flow and spending. And I am both tenacious and incredibly passionate about how we use money. And I just just wouldn't let it go. And um, I would get in arguments with other advisors, the media, it didn't matter. I didn't care. I knew we had to do something about it. And I could not accept that the industry wasn't going to be part of the solution. So I just kept pushing. And what I found is advisors would be coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, I want to learn what you're doing. So I wrote a couple of books. And it wasn't long after that, that I started to realize that I can help a couple of hundred people if I keep doing this myself, but I can help millions if I can arm the entire industry with the power to more easily help people change spending. So we went from me just being a loan advisor with an assistant, running your typical financial practice, selling investments and insurance. I was also charging fees for advice. And I sold that practice and I still did some fee for advice work for a little while. And I took a leap of faith and started taking what I had done with my clients and turned it into a process that I could teach to other advisors. And it was very early in that process. I went around the country. I launched workshops. I did all this crazy stuff just to see what would happen. And uh, it wasn't long into that process that advisors were saying, hey, I love this. Where's the tools so I can do this quickly? And I thought, oh, no. And they started asking me for software. And for two years, I resisted. I thought, no, I don't know how to write code. I am not a tech person. I like find another tool. I'm going to be the trainer. And it, you know, I kept fighting and it just, it became obvious I was going to lose the battle. Mm -hmm. And so I found a friend of mine who uh, runs um, a tech company and uh, he builds a lot of software on spec for other organizations. And uh, I phoned him up and I basically said, hey, I have an idea and I have no money. Can I borrow an engineer? Hey, I have an idea. What a compelling (laughs) offer. I know. And he giggled and then said, well okay, you better say more about that, but maybe. So he actually did do that. He ended up owning a part of the company. He still does. He's wonderful. And, and we're forever grateful for those, you know, initial technical efforts. And his team built the first version of what was then called Money Finder Pro, now Cashflow Pro. And um, yeah, it was really, really effective to have that kind of technical partner early on. He wasn't, you know, day in, day out. I had to come up with a lot of the ideas and work directly with his team, but we finally got something out there. And from there, like once a software collides with the user, then the building really begins. Yeah. No no battle plan survives uh, first encounter with the enemy. That's right. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So it was really great to push something out quickly, as painful as it is to push out a, you know, a minimum viable product, as hard as it is to look at something imperfect. Somebody really smart one day said to me, you know, if your first product isn't embarrassing, then you waited too long to release it. Well, either you met Reid Hoffman or they just copied what he tells people. Yes. I can't remember who quoted it. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. So it was probably somebody quoting him. Yes. No Um, no doubt. Either that. I was was just wondering if you met Reid Hoffman or not. No, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's just, you know, it was embarrassing. It wasn't what I wanted it to be. I mean, the vision inside my head is very, very large and the the product still isn't there. But in fairness, the vision inside your head is not necessarily what the market's looking for, right? So this is, and that's the most valuable lesson of that saying is simply saying that, hey, 
you think you know what, what everybody wants, yeah. but you don't know until you know. And that's not yeah. going to happen until you actually give it life. Absolutely. And you don't know, even when you listen to what um, someone tells you they want, what the market says they want, it actually isn't what they say, it's what they do. So you can't tell what they'll do with something until you put it out there. And so from there, we started iterating on that initial product. That initial product has actually been killed off and we reinvented it. And now we're getting to the point where we're starting to build and focus more on the end user. Our intention is always to work directly with the financial services industry. We don't want to go direct to consumer. We don't want to go around the advisor. I believe that people need a third party they can lean on when they make these complex financial decisions. And so I don't think that only robo advisors are the way of the future. I think humans will still value some of that back and forth, but the industry is changing. Advice is becoming more valuable than products which are highly commoditized and advice will eventually get commoditized too. So we're seeing like all this, this trending and what we're trying to do now is focus enough on the end user, the client of the advisor, so that we can inject more of those seemingly irrelevant factors directly to the end consumer so we can be more helpful to the industry so that we can make it easier and easier for a financial professional or institution to, or to introduce their clients to this spending behavior changes that we have found to be effective through the tool and more and more let them self-serve and more and more make it feel normal and simple and easy. And that's really hard to do. Making something easy is really, really difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's every process fails in a number of steps you ask someone to take. If it's more than a button, you're already introducing more zones of failure than you can imagine. <laughs> so Right, and yeah. even a button. You think about it in one place, and then you have to think about, oh, is the user going to actually want to click that button at that stage on that page? Or maybe are they going to need to be able to possibly click yep. the same button in seven places and oh yeah this is why google a b tested like colors of blue like it really <laughs> it really the, the little nuances of just people's behavior and it's funny we're talking about this because you're, you're talking about two things that are so heavily behavior and habit based which are you know just how you interact with technology and in addition to that cash flow <laughs> so yeah there's a, there's a real corollary there for you yeah. And today, even like we work with a lot of credit unions now and today, even when we're training our clients, when they originally come into the software, you know, we're not shy about helping them understand, like, listen, we're using our behavioral knowledge to help you too, because you're a human and change is hard. And we know we're asking you to, to shift something. So we're using what we understand, not only about spending behavior change, but about what we've had to learn about user behavior change and trying to stay, of course, consistent with user path, or if they guess what to do, it's the right thing. All of that, like it's all in that same area of, of how, how we act when we come in contact with something else. Yeah. So let's uh, go through the experience with the software. So start from the advisor perspective, who's probably driving this with the client. So how does this work? Yeah. So it's come a long way. We have made it so that it's integrated so that you can log in through Gmail and all those fun things. So an advisor simply logs into our platform and they'll land on a dashboard and they'll be able to see all of their customers and they'll be able to sort them by um, the status of whether they've shared information with them or not. They'll be able to sort them by, you know, first name, last name, some kind of standard abilities of, of a lot of um, fintech softwares where you've got like households and financial information nesting underneath um, families or individuals. 
And so advisors from that dashboard can also access learning materials, all of our tutorials and any kind of training that we have for, and all levels of software users get some type of training. Some people take our designation program as well. So they have a very robust training attached to that. And others are just using the software. So they have much lighter training tools, but everybody's got access to training. But typically the first thing somebody's gonna do when they log in to Cashflow Pro is if it's their first time, they're going to create a household and they're gonna add their profile. So from an advisor perspective, all I actually need to add is my name my email and my phone number and I my profile is done all of that will then land on my reporting when I create a digital report for my client and then for the client they just simply click on create a household and they have to enter the client's same information name phone number and email and then they can invite the client to contribute some information to pro to see if we can find them some money is there cash flow to be freed up now there's a lot of nuance in sending people an intake form and getting it back and so that's not only contained in the training but also in the default messaging that we provide there for the advisor they can edit anything they like but our software automatically sends out the um, intake email on behalf of the advisor or allows them to copy and paste the unique link and, and send it out directly. But we give them the language that's really helpful to get clients to send information in advance. Most advisors will tell you it's very difficult to get somebody to send anything in advance, let alone bring everything that they're supposed to to the first meeting. And what we learned behaviorally is that's because they don't know what they're going to get. They don't understand that what the value is if I make the effort. And a great way to think about it is if I'm applying for a mortgage and the mortgage broker tells me they need my T4 and I want the house, I will give them the T4. I will not take six months and forget it 10 times, right? You're asking people to do labor without explaining what the benefit of the labor is. Exactly. (laughs) And so in the training, we encourage them once they start finding money, even telling people like on average, I'm finding $2,300 a month because our tool on average finds in the credit union uh, space, it finds between thousand and fifteen hundred dollars a month but for individual advisors who might be working in the wealth space we see it higher than that it's usually around twenty five hundred three thousand dollars a month freed up to put towards goals so one in the messaging that they send out with intake forms they can share the types of results they're having and then two um, helping the the client understand it's only going to take 10 minutes for you to fill out this form some of your expenses you will know off the top of your head or you can quickly look in your bank so some information is really easy to figure out like how much your mortgage payment is it only takes a second usually to find that in your online banking but other things like groceries having clients try and figure out what they actually spent on groceries is not very effective and our software doesn't actually need that information Mm -hmm. so um, we have some language in the intake that just you know lays out this only takes 10 minutes you're going to find you can give us accurate information about how much your home insurance is that you can quickly confirm that but just estimate you know these expenses so we one want to try and give them a sense of how long it should take And when the advisor is producing some found money, they can be sharing what types of results they're getting. So now I know what I'm going to get out of it. And then the third thing is to give them just light instruction that helps them reduce how difficult it feels. It isn't hard, but how difficult it feels or how difficult they anticipate it to be, so important. What's the fear factor? I mean, how many times you were an advisor, you know, you know, it's happened. I mean, how many times have you had a conversation where 
either someone's confessed that they didn't start because they were terrified of knowing the truth or other people have told them, well, why would you do that? Why would you want to know how bad it is? And it's like the willful ignorance that people choose to live in because of fear, right? And the more approachable we make all this and the more easy to use, the hopefully the more that barrier gets broken down. Yeah, there's a lot of fear. And the other thing, there's fears on both sides. Um, what we learned training advisors for all those years that we've done it is that there is a fear that if I ask people for information in advance, then they won't give me the information and then they'll never have the meeting and then I'll never get to work with them. But when you can give a compelling reason for why I need the information in advance, so the other language we have in there is just that this allows us to spend the whole time working together, actually talking about what's important instead of writing down facts and figures, that type of thing. And the, uh, the last thing is tying the point of managing your cash flow, not to long-term goals. If human beings were easily motivated by saving for retirement, we would be running out of mutual funds, right? It's not happening. It's helping them understand that managing their cash flow, the first primary goal should be about something they want that is emotional in nature that will take six to 18 months to achieve. And then as an advisor, I am now helping my clients reach goals every six to 18 months instead of retirement, which you only know they successfully reached when they're dead because you don't know they didn't run out of money yes. until they're not here anymore. That's, that's and so true. the language in the intake form is really key. So we, we provide that right in the tool, but still allow the advisor to edit it. And once they send that intake form, it's going to pop into the client's email. Client's going to get a secure link that they log into. It's very, very easy to use on like a phone or a tablet or a regular computer. And they can just tap through the fields. And we put a lot of suggestions for expenses so they don't have to try and remember. There's nothing worse than a blank spreadsheet when you're asking somebody for that type of information. They need memory joggers. No, and so once they've entered their information, they simply hit complete and the advisor gets an email letting them know that the information is in there with a link to log directly into the software. And when they log in, it takes them about a millisecond to see, is this client able to be helped or not? So our software shows an instant number. We call it the gets you ahead number. And it shows if this client just does what the software recommended all by itself, the advisor didn't have to do anything yet. It shows how the impact that would have on that client over a 10 year period of time. And it's not unusual for that to be 150,000, 200,000, 300,000, $400,000 of impact. It's interesting because it's the old, you know, you're showing them the power of compounding if they just save X number of dollars. But what you're actually showing them is that the fact that they can save X number of dollars and the, yeah. the end impact. So, you know, we kind of skip over the beginning part of, and say, okay, you know, if you did X, you could, you know, have Y at the end of 10, 15, 20 years. But they're like, yeah, but I got to do X. Whereas you're basically saying from day one, no, no, look, look what we made available to you. And look yeah. at the end result. Here's how to do X. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, that's what's missing is how do I do that? Yeah, yeah, I, I, sure, it's important. Oh, that's but on how? You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how do I do it? So what we end up doing is only servicing what people think they can afford to save instead of what they can actually afford to save. And those numbers are really far apart. Mm -hmm. And that's not only good for the end user, that client, but it's hugely effective for the advisor. And we've had that. I mean, anyone who's ever put a financial plan together knows that pain. I mean, I still remember the, you know, the way we, we, way we cope with it in my practice is we always do a preliminary assessment and say, okay, this is how much money you appear to have left every month. Is that realistic? And inevitably, nine out of 10 times, the answer is no, to which the response is, okay, so what is realistic? And then, you know, we slap in a latte factor number and then coach them around that. But yeah. I kid you not, I think the largest latte factor I ever found was $75,000 a year. And it was just like, 
And then, you know, even, even that shocked them. Like they were like, yeah. And the whole idea of like trying to get people to cut those types of expenses, there's some big challenges with that. The biggest you, you had on it earlier when you said, you know, some people don't want to know how bad it is. That's because they perceive when they share their expense information that they're going to get a lecture, that they're going to be made exactly. feel guilty. Yeah. And we cannot get clients to replace their judgment with ours. And a lot of what we, you know, you kind of hear espoused in a lot of the kind of, you know, basic what to do with your cash flow stuff. It doesn't take into account that the perception of value and the difference between clients, right? So first off, you're right. They're afraid they're going to get judged by how they're spending their money. But at the same time, let's all, you know, different things are of value to different people, right? And I often, I'll always say the same thing when it comes to people's cash flow. It's, yeah, to me, maybe going to Starbucks on a daily basis and spending $4 is a terrible use of money. But to you, if that's the only thing that keeps you sane in your job, then it might be a good investment, quite frankly, right? And it's not about judging the individual expenditures. It's about them getting information in front of them as determined, that's my total price tag on the year for doing that one activity. Do I actually find and determine value from that? And yeah. the answer is no, then there's a disconnect between what they're paying and what they're, what they're receiving. Yeah, exactly. And experience spending has been noted in all kinds of studies we're starting to see coming out. Mm -hmm. People get more value, more perceived value, which is the only value that matters. Because yep. hum most humans are not economists and they're not like, I had eight ounces of value from that. Latte. I am optimizing for along this curve where it's tangent to something else. Yes, yeah, I, I always love that. Yeah. yeah, this yeah. hyperbola says this will happen. So yeah, so the, there's all these things. So the guilt factor is really hard and it's really hard for the industry not to default to it, not to say, oh, well, if you just packed your lunches and did this, you'd be fine. Because the reality is that people won't do that for a long period of time. And weeks are different week in, week out. Like nothing is the same from one week to the next. Yeah. There's patterns, but it's not guaranteed. And so what our software does is instead of micromanaging categories and other things that are shown to cause humans to go into something called ego depletion, where their brain gets too tired that it can't do smart things anymore. So there's been studies done where like people get put in a room and half the people are allowed to have the fresh baked chocolate cookies and the other ones have to have <laughs> radishes. Yeah. And then they do IQ tests and the people that had to force themselves not to eat the cookies, like their IQ plummets because mm -hmm. their brain was too tired trying to control itself. And so there's, there's, a, there's a limited amount of willpower. And, and yeah. Again, uh, yeah, we actually have a limited amount and it will, yeah. it will replenish itself, but not immediately following a difficult task. So we learned that when humans have to, you know, if your client has to track their grocery spend and how much they're allowed to have coffee and whether they're allowed to go out for lunch or not and how much gasoline they put in the car and, 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 and they yeah. get tired and they give up. And so they perceive, that they're going to be made to feel guilty and then it's going to be hard and then it's not even going to work. Like who would even do that? Yeah. And then there's a setback because it had, you know, then there's the unexpected cash flow setback. So now they've, you know, all that effort went away. It's the old, you yeah. know, I've been on a diet for three weeks, but then I ate a cheeseburger. So now I'm. So might as well give up. Yeah. Might as well give up. Right. Cause it makes it seem all so futile because one thing can take away weeks worth of incremental effort. Yeah. Exactly. It's painful. So yeah. the end results, basically you're giving them this information in a nice, easily digest visual format that helps mm -hmm. educate them and show them just 
how much opportunity exists. Yeah, so it's doing, it's essentially performing two functions by itself, and then it allows the advisors to do basically two functions that affect the outcome of the plan. And so the workload on the advisor, when we compare it to like more comprehensive financial planning tools, is very light. It should take them less than five minutes to generate cash flow management strategy, but the, and the, the effort on the client should be also light, but essentially what it's doing is it's looking at all the expenses the client entered and it's putting them in two buckets. So instead of the traditional fixed and variable or discretionary and essential, it puts it in, in buckets we call committed and spendable. So the difference is things like gasoline are variable, but you could spend a ton of energy trying to control gasoline and you're going to suffer that ego depletion thing. And then your brain isn't very good at controlling your groceries, which are actually a way higher risk spend. The challenge with discretionary and essential is groceries. Groceries are both, and the superstore is competing with Walmart, and you can get a patio set where you buy your bananas. Or Amazon's delivering food now, and like it's just, yeah, yeah. or Costco. What did you, (laughs) Yeah, it's it's not all food anymore. Yeah, so the committed expenses are all these low risk things that there are a couple of factors around them. Clients will normally remember those numbers off the top of their head, like their life insurance or their home insurance. They know what that number is, or it's really easy to confirm, and it's not 40 transactions this month that I have to add up. I just check it. They're also low risk of emotional overspend, so I don't have a bad day and buy extra home insurance. I don't accidentally pay double for my home insurance you know, because I wasn't paying attention. So the software just adds those ones up. They're very machine readable, very easy to work with. And then it looks at the person's other factors. So instead of trying to figure out what somebody was doing and get them to change it, because they can't go backwards and change what they already did. We look at what, where are they and what, what could they do? And so instead of all this adding up what they said they spent on groceries, because we know the data is not accurate anyway, unless they have a forensic accountant, what it does is it takes their debts, incomes, assets, and expenses into account And then it prescribes what we call the spendable number. And so that's the big key to our software is the way in which it can quickly assess cash flow and spending. And they're then very simply boil all of that down, that single number, just that spendable number. And so then that's all the client actually has to manage. So instead of a budget where we'd say, okay, you can have $20 for coffee and $200 for groceries. It's saying, okay, your spendable number is $500 a week or $620 a week, or $718 a week, and you're going to stay within that. And that's all you have to do. You don't have to manage anything else. And so the software does that, and then it finds money. So it'll, it'll generate an opportunity number, and that's what the advisor puts to work. Yeah, it's interesting, because this is kind of reminding me of a subject that came up with a recent guest, uh, Daniel Everhard from Coho, which is a neobank. And yeah. it was a simple little observation that struck me, which was when you log into your bank account, you see how much money's there. You don't see how much money's free for you to spend. And I can only imagine how many people that leads down the wrong path, right? Because you have to do a mental, you have to do mental aerobics every time you check what your balance is, just Mm -hmm. to know, can I afford X or Y or whatever it is like, okay, I have this coming out on the 15th, this coming out on the whatever. And just a simple exercise of showing you what is available, factoring in all those types of non-flexible payments, like we discussed, that little piece of data is hugely valuable. Because yeah. that alone is going to change behavior. Yeah. So instead of our software telling you what's there, our software tells you what that number should be. Yeah. And then we train the advisors to separate that. And so a product like Coho, actually, um, a lot of our clients would use that with their clients. 
because Coho is pretty powerful for giving somebody a separate account that's really easy to manage. Yep. And so the software is doing that. It's sorting the expenses and then prescribing the spendable number. And all the advisor has to do is check to see if changing the debt structure would make any sense. So a lot of financial advisors who are independent don't tend to deal with debt a lot, but it's killing their asset business and they need to pay more attention to it. Whereas when we work with credit unions, they're actually already dealing with both sides of the balance sheet. So our software has a refinance tool that allows you to quickly model how refinancing might change their cash flow even a little bit more. And the advisor literally clicks two buttons to see if that will work. And then the next thing they do is figure out what to do with the found money. So we basically take a client from coming into your office and you chase them around for information for months. And then maybe you try and get them to save for the future, but you have to battle against all of these things in your way. And with our tool, it shows you exactly how to find, you know, $1,000 a month or $2,000 a month. And your job as the advisor is to take the $2,000 a month and give it a job, making sure one of the jobs is, those, is that short-term goal, that exciting so, thing. You mentioned credit unions on a couple of occasions. I'm wondering, you know, is there, what can you attribute the traction you're getting into that one vertical with? Like, what is it about them that seems to, what you're doing seems to resonate with them specifically? Yeah, so the, I think why it's so impactful is credit unions are owned by their members. So they sit on the same side of the table, no matter which way you slice it. And um, they also are groups of employees. So there are managers and there is structure, whereas independent advisors, like they all have their own way of doing things. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so with credit unions, we're able to really help them get consistent results that are in line with the way they are with their ethos, essentially. We're a really good ethos match for credit unions. They're in this world to help their members and they're owned by those members. So there's no shareholder between the customer and the organization. The customer is the shareholder. So it's just the whole way they are makes them a really good fit for us. And they're also at a stage where a lot of them are now starting to really explore what their technical options are with fintech. So they're in that kind of exploring and looking phase. So it's really good timing. It's a really good ethos fit. And their whole purpose of being lines up completely with what we're doing. And it's interesting because they're smaller, they're more nimble. They can take those things on. They have a lot of the advantages of the bank in terms of top-down control, but without as much bureaucracy. And I, I got to say, this, uh, the fact that they're small is probably helping them because unlike the banks who always inevitably say, well, we could just build this ourselves, yeah. and never do or do a poor job of it, they realize they have to partner more. Yeah, it's an yeah. interesting little, little niche. So one of the things we discussed previously was the health score. So you yes. talked about this as a newer feature that you're working on currently. So uh, take me through what that does. Yeah, so our, look, our go forward roadmap is a lot on the end user, that client experience, and more and more making it easier and easier for the professional user and the institution to get the results they're after and make it easier for them to help. And one of the things we realized we had to do was start to understand what is the general state of somebody before they get put through the tool and how much can we improve their financial health. And there aren't a lot of consistent or standardized health scoring methodologies, financial health scoring methodologies out there. And especially there's not many that contain cash flow, not in the way we mean. Like they might contain your income, 
but today we can go out and get a loan for our mortgage and our heat and taxes and our mortgage payment are taken into account, but nobody takes into account the fact that I might have a $2,000 a month daycare bill. <laughs> no one ever does take into account that, unfortunately. It's, I, always, I always laugh at the debt score ratios and, and look at all the things that are just not included in that and how unrealistic yeah. it becomes. Oh, yeah. And, and it's no wonder. And this is, we all know it. I mean, I often make the joke, and this is, this is a little bit crude, but asking a bank how much you can borrow is like asking a drug dealer how much drugs you can do. The answer is enough that you stay alive without dying. But the problem is, is that they don't actually take into account the everything that's going on in your life. And yeah. when people come to me and say, well, the bank said I can afford this kind of house. Well, that's, that's nice. The bank looked at the shot class of information they asked for, and they have no idea what your actual capabilities of, of being able to afford that are. And unfortunately, it leads, of course, too many people to buy too much house and too much debt. So Yeah, and it's the difference between theoretical understanding of an, a situation and reality. Exactly. And so what we're trying to build is a health score that builds off reality. So we're at the point now where our software has been around for almost five years. It was in its infancy for a little while, but we have a lot of data and we are starting to be able to look at limited factors of information from an individual and be able to estimate what the opportunity within that household is. And as we started to realize, oh, like people could give us very small amounts of information and we could give them a good or reasonable sense of how much money we might be able to free up for them. If that's the case, we can probably start looking at this information differently and get a slice of before and after. So we're using a combination of things like debt to debt to income ratio. It's really, I always laugh because the debt to income ratio comes out and we're all appalled. Canadians owe $1.78 for every dollar that they earn. And we all go, oh, yeah, How horrific. Most, we're on our way to ruin. I know, but most working Canadians owe like $3 for every dollar yeah. they owe. Well, I, all the babies the, are counted in that, right? Yeah, exactly. And like, I, I actually put these charts up in my classes and just like, and I show it by age band. I was like, if you think that's bad. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, most of us are going to wish that was the case at a certain point in life. And yeah, it's, it's like, oh, yeah, also all the people who've retired who should hopefully have paid off their debts or in their 70s, those are also counted. And it's like, okay, yeah. so really, yeah. it's, a, it's a heck of a lot worse when you look at working age people. Right, absolutely. So it, it's actually closer, like a decent debt to income ratio for somebody who's 45, for example, two and a half is they're doing pretty good. So we, we measure the debt to income ratio and um, we will probably eventually add age demographics to help us spot skewing. So we're, we're looking at that, but we're looking at it with a realistic sense. We're not measuring it against the dollar 78 because it's a broader scale than that. So we're looking at things like that. But the other things we're looking at is what type of debt is making up their debt. So we've seen a lot of research that comes out over and over again. We see 60% of Canadians retiring in debt. But what often doesn't show up, but if you dig for it, you can find it in most every report, is of that debt, 60% of the debt Canadians are retiring with is credit cards and lines yep. of credit. And yep. those things are not very good at paying themselves off. And so our health score is taking into account what is the makeup of your debt and what is your car loan payment compared to um, the other types of debt you have? Because that's another thing we see is it's not unusual to see people, households whose car payments are equal or even eclipse the mortgage payment mm -hmm. because it's, you know, oh, well, it's a lease and then I could get the really good one. And first it was $600 yeah. a month, then it was 700. We needed two. 
So you end up with these things. So it's measuring things like that as the data comes in. And then what we're looking at is after the, our cash flow formulas and all of our algorithms are applied and that spendable number is figured out and we've tested whether refinancing is better for them. And the professional has given that household spendable or that opportunity income a job. After the after state, how much have we improved their financial health in the factors that we can change immediately? So we can't change their debt to income ratio immediately, but we can measure that one over time. But we can change things like what proportion of their debt is being paid off at what rate. So the software is measuring, like, if we do the things the plan says, how much healthier are we? And so what our hope is, is to establish more standardization in measuring somebody's financial capacity as part of their financial health, not just these, I don't know who came up with them, but these kind of traditional or um, accepted practices of, you know, total debt service, gross debt service. Um, you know, like, yeah, that, that literally mean nothing. You know, we all look for heuristic shortcuts and, you know, no surprise in finance, we find them everywhere. Yeah. So before we wrap up, there's a couple of questions I typically ask everybody. So I'm uh, just going to blindside you with these, uh, answer the best of your, uh, <laughs> best of your <laughs> if you had one wish as to something you can change in the industry or about your product in general, what would it be? Oh, something I could change about the industry or my product? Yes. And I change both. <laughs> I'm smart enough to know it will take a really long time to change the industry. We can probably change the product faster. So I'll give you that one. If I could change anything about our product, I would change how much data we can, how much we can use the data to understand earlier. I would have a time machine and I would go back and watch for the patterns we can see now earlier because we would have seen them way earlier if we'd been looking for them. Yeah, I think that's what I would do is, is focus more and more on the data earlier in time. And um, of course, what we're doing now is more on the end user. Right. What were the biggest challenges you encountered in uh, starting this company? There's a lot of them. I am a lone founder, so that was very difficult. I had a technical partner, but that was somebody who lent me an engineer, not, not like, you know, developing Facebook in the dorm room kind of thing. I already had a child and that sort of thing when I started this. So I had a lot of commitments. I couldn't work 24 hours a day and live on Red Bull. <laughs> and on top of that, I don't have a technical background. And so I bootstrapped this company for three years and then we went and raised venture capital. And the bootstrapping part was a little less hard because I didn't know that I was weird. <laughs> I didn't know that. I was just trying to build a business. And then when I really realized in order to scale the, the tech, in order to truly help people, I actually have to scale this business. And in order to scale the business, I need a really much deeper investment in the technology and in the people who build the technology. Then I realized I had to raise venture capital so or find a way to fund it. And venture capital ended up being the thing that worked out for us. But not realizing that some of the filters that are used to decide whether I'm a good founder are things like, they won't admit they're things like, am I a girl? But the numbers show that that is. Unfortunately, um, that is <laughs> a uh, known, undiscussed thing. That's getting more, it's, it's yeah, it's yeah. becoming more of an apparent called out factor now, thankfully, and people are starting to, uh, to address that. But yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah, so it's still like, yeah, it's a factor, but it's not something I can't change. So I don't try not to get too bogged down in it, but I have to be aware of it. And, you know, other things like being a lone founder, traditionally venture capitalists believe that two founders is the optimal number. 
and a lone founder is really scary. The only thing scarier is a married couple as founders. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. I can totally see that. Yeah, but the, the uphill climb for me has really been, um, once I got a hold of the resources, has really been finding the right technical talent when I don't have the technical knowledge to call BS when I, I don't know what I don't know. Like, yeah, the, my brain, yeah, my brain is in that tool. Nobody can build it really without me at this point, but I can't build it with like on my yeah. own either. Like I can write the algorithms, but I cannot make the software work. So finding out how to lead and hire, and that has been a really huge challenge. I feel like we're finally getting that formula right, but there's so many people who never have really built a technology that think, oh, you just get a, a developer and you no. can like throw an app up on the app store. Well, you Not can outsource all that. And it's <laughs> yeah. Like, but the thing is, and I, you know, so I have some plays myself and luckily I have technical co-founders and the reality comes down to this is that one will tell me all the time he's run various companies it's like there's a lot of people who can program out there unfortunately as everything in life there's a lot of people who can program poorly out there and you don't unless you know how to read code you don't know if what they've actually built is any good it may get you from point a to point b or at least you think it does but it may do yeah. it in the most terrible way possible it's going to break its scale or or misses things at the at the margins any number of things so it's yeah, yeah. It's, if you can't speak that language it's a real challenge yeah so in the last two years in particular I have learned a ton and I feel much more confident and comfortable dealing with the technical aspects but we are of course also in a market where hiring that skill set is really challenging and in Halifax we have the benefit of being full of universities and lots of computer science grads but when it comes to senior development talent the competition is crazy i was going to so say i'm sure you have a lot of young ones who are there and then they leave as soon as they graduate yeah so no we've done pretty good at keeping the young yeah. ones but like this yeah finding the, I meant the general flow of talent oh yeah yeah it's in, in the province yeah you're right and the um the senior Senior technology leaders, like finding somebody who's the right balance between careful and ready to deal with the scrutiny of financial services, because the tech building tech for some other industry is a very different thing than building tech that a financial institution is going to use. You have to be oh, yeah. so much more careful. But managing that with the pace of a startup, that temperament was really hard to find. I think we have it now. We have a great CTO. But it, it was really like, it was like finding a needle in a haystack and maybe more of a needle in a pile of needles and molten lava. <laughs> Fair enough. So one last question. What excites you the most about what you're working on, what you're doing? What, like, what gets you up in the morning to keep, uh, to keep trudging along? You know, we were talking about this the other day. This last year was really, really challenging. It was probably the biggest roller coaster ride we've had since our inception. A lot of hard decisions, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of not knowing how to get from point A to point B. And I was talking to our board chair and um, she said to me, why do you keep going? And I thought, that's a good question. But the really the core of it is, is I feel like we need to build things that prevent money from hurting people. And so then the last little while as we were, you know, working on our purpose as a company and really helping us guide where we go, what we build, I really, really got clear on that. And that's it. Like I do this so that we can prevent money from hurting people and not a couple hundred people, but millions and millions and millions of people. 
then there are, the trends are coming up to match us now. We're seeing underserved and underbanked and people being looked at as like something that's important that communities are striving to help. And the idea of inclusion, like it's all just coming together. So we are in this to prevent money from hurting people. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time, Stephanie. This has been great. And I encourage everyone to check out what it is you've been working on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So that was my interview with Stephanie Holmes-Winton of Cashflow. Hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you take the time to take a look at Cashflow. And with that, as always, I'm Jason Pereira. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.